All right. Good morning. Y'all come on in and grab a seat. And then as people come in and trickle in and fill in the seats, that's just kind of our style. That's kind of our routine. So before we get started on our topic today of the sufficiency of Scripture, I want to mention a pastoral word, which I think will be helpful. So three things are going to happen anytime you start studying theology at a deeper level, as we've been doing. The first is that you'll have some of your questions answered, and you'll learn more about God, and it will make you love Him more. That's the first thing. That's a good thing. We like that. That's exciting. The second thing that can happen when you start studying theology is sometimes you'll find yourself feeling more spiritually attacked. You'll find yourself being snippier and snappier. You'll find yourself being more frustrated. Some of the sins you struggle with will feel stronger. You'll feel more pulled towards those things. The reason for that is because the enemy hates you, and he doesn't want you knowing God's Word, and so what he does is he tries to distract. And so if that is happening in anybody's life, just know that that is normal, all right? The third thing is, and this is something we have to always be on guard for, this is everybody, myself included, as we learn more about the Bible and as we learn more about theology, we have to be on guard for pride. Pride can easily creep in. You'll start to have answers that other people don't have, and it's easy to look down on them, and it's easy to be uh, kind of condemning to them and these kind of things. So just be aware of these things. These are things that can happen for all of us. You will always learn the most, the more humble that you are. I've seen students in classes after classes after classes, for example, in seminary and these kind of things, where they come in, and they assume they already know everything. They come in there to try to teach the professor something. And those are the students that don't learn as much. The students that learn are the ones that humbly say... I'll hear this out. I'll hear this out. So the reason I say that is because when it comes to the Bible, most of these topics that we've been discussing over the last several weeks, all of us would agree with as evangelicals. We would say, yeah, I believe the Bible's authoritative. I believe it's perfect. I believe it's God's word. When it comes to what we're talking about today, this is something that even evangelicals really, really, really struggle to believe. This is one of the most misunderstood doctrines when it comes to Scripture specifically. Last week, I talked about what's called the conservative resurgence, how there was this movement in the mid-1900s to try to get seminaries back to believing in the inerrancy of Scripture. And we won that battle. All the SBC major seminaries right now are conservative. They believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. They believe it's God's Word, all these kind of things. Where we have lost the battle is when it comes to the idea of sufficiency. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is all that you need? What do we mean when we say the Bible is all that you need? All that you need for what? All that you need for plumbing, all that you need for relationships, all that you need for dealing with cancer, all that you need. We're going to go over these kind of things today and try to figure out what that means. And then for the back half of the class, this is when it's going to get really spicy and juicy, and I'm going to give us a bunch of different scenarios that are kind of difficult, and we're going to have to think through how we should answer those scenarios in light of what we've learned about sufficiency. Sound good? Okay, it should be fun. All right, let's start with the definition of sufficiency. This is Grudem's definition on your handout. It's a pretty good definition of this topic. Here's what it says. And if you're wondering if I still have my cough, the answer is yes. It is an eternal cough. I will never not have it anymore. I'm going on six, seven weeks. Okay. Dr. Steve, I need you to write me a prescription for something. Okay. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each state of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. I'm going to read that again because that's a really good definition, and it's really important that you see the way that he phrases that when he talks about different parts of redemptive history. The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contained all the words of God he intended his people to have at each state of redemptive history, and that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. What this means is everything that God requires us to know and everything that God requires us to do is simply what is in Scripture, and that has always been the case throughout redemptive history. What was the one thing God required Adam not to do? 
eat of the tree. And what did he do? You had one job, Adam. You had one job. All right, so at that point, the sufficiency of God's word to Adam was don't eat of this tree, be fruitful and multiply, you know, subdue the earth for my glory. Then later on, you get commands to Noah, and later on, you get, later on, you get the Mosaic law. And during those periods of time, that's all God's people need to know. Now, though, that the fullness of revelation has come, though God spoke to us in many different ways in former times through prophets and these kind of things, he has given his final word in his son, Jesus. We now have everything that God requires us to know for salvation, for trusting him perfectly, and for obeying him perfectly. Let me give you another definition of sufficiency. This comes from John Frame. This one's a little simpler, but it's equally as true. Scripture contains all the divine words needed for any aspect of human life. Any aspect of human life. Let me tell you how the Westminster Confession puts it. What is the Westminster Confession? It is a famous Protestant Reformed Calvinistic doctrine of Scripture, if you will, or summary of Scripture and summary of doctrine. And it says this about sufficiency. This is a pretty good definition. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. Meaning, everything we need that God requires of us for salvation, for life, for joy, for obedience is in Scripture. And that is true of Scripture. We, though, still need the Holy Spirit to actually apply that to our lives. A lost person can read Scripture and see God's commands. They can actually see all the same commands we can see. But do they see them as true and good and right and something that should be embraced? No, they see them as something that's repulsive. Whereas those who've been born again see them as something in true and right and something to be embraced. Now, I want you to see that there are several passages that we can look at that show this idea of the sufficiency of Scripture, that show that the Scripture is sufficient. And we'll get into the juicy questions later, so just know. Those, those are the teaser to keep you awake. But let's go over a few of these passages, all right? 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. Again, this 2 Timothy 3 passage we've mentioned in every single class we've done, all right? This is a big one. We want you to memorize this one. We want you to know it. If you're going to get a tattoo, get one on your forehead of this passage, all right? So every time you look at it, you'll remember this passage. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have, been, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now look at verse 17. This is sufficiency. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It says it twice. That by simply following the scriptures, which in this case would include originally Old Testament, but also by implication New Testament, by simply following that, it makes you, quote, complete and equipped for every good work. There is no good work that God requires of you that you can do that is not somehow addressed in Scripture, either directly or by a broader implication of Scripture. That is what we're saying when we say sufficiency, okay? Let's look at a few other passages. Now, that one's pretty clear. That one basically says, if you have the Scriptures, you're complete and equipped for every good work. That's a pretty clear passage of sufficiency, but let me give you some others that hint at it. Let me give you some others that hint at it. Psalm 119.1 says this, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now, these passages are put in parallel to each other. Constantly when you read the Psalms, there's something known as parallelism. They'll say things like, God really hates evil and bad things he really hates. They'll do these little, uh, little parallelisms to where one verse elucidates the other verse. All right, That's what's going on here. It says, blessed, that, that one who is perfect 
is one who walks in the law of the Lord. Those are seen as being equivalent, all right? Blessed are those whose way is blameless. What is it to be blameless? Next verse tells us, who walk in the law of the Lord. To walk in God's law is to be blameless, i.e. sufficient. The, the, the word is sufficient. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it, okay? So we may not, in this idea of sufficiency, we may not add to God's word and we may not take away from it. What do you think our tendency is to do as those that are conservative evangelicals? Our tendency is to add to God's word. Okay, <clears throat> those that are more theologically liberal, they have a tendency to take away from God's word. All right, there's certain commands they don't like or certain things they don't like or certain things that deal with social or ethical issues they don't like, so they get rid of it. Our tendency as conservatives is to add rules to scripture because listen, that feels more holy, doesn't it? If someone comes up to me and says, can I do this act or can I do something? My gut check reaction is to err on the side of protecting them from sin. And so what we start doing is we start building fences around the law. One of the things Jesus, okay, <clears throat> one of the things Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for, let's talk about this a little bit. The Pharisees build fences around God's law and around God's command. God's command for the Pharisees under an Old Testament system would say things like, don't work on the Sabbath. But what the Pharisees would do is they would say, well, we don't even want you to get close to working on the Sabbath. We don't ever want you to accidentally work on the Sabbath. So what we're going to do is we're going to build this fence around the law that says, you can't even take this many steps on the Sabbath. And they're meaning to do it out of a good heart. They're trying to keep their people from disobeying God's word because when you disobey God's word, they know that they get exiled. And so out of a heart that wants to obey God, though God's rule says and his law says don't work on the Sabbath under their system, they're going to say don't even take this many steps. God's law says this is how you be clean. They start adding to that. And what does Jesus do when it comes to these fences? He rebukes them and says you're teaching as doctrine the traditions of men. Where in our own lives have we built these fences? Where has God's rule and God's word and God's law said one thing in particular, but because we're so afraid of getting even close to that, we need to make sure that we just are 10 steps removed. When we do that, we do not honor God's word. What we say when we do that is that God forgot to put something in his word that we should have. Those who are theologically liberal dishonor God's word because they take away things. They say God put stuff in his word he shouldn't have. Those that are theologically conservative like us have a tendency to say, God forgot to put stuff in his rules that we all know must be sinful because of our culture and to keep people from sin and protect everybody, let's add rules to that. And when you do that, it dishonors God's word and you are saying that you know more about right living and ethics than does God. Okay, so we have to be careful there. Matthew 15, nine, in vain do they worship me teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. All right, that's kind of what I was just saying with the Pharisees. Okay, now let's talk about some clarifications on sufficiency, because this is a very confused doctrine, and I'll tell you why in a second. Number one, <clears throat> sufficiency does not mean that we have everything about a particular topic in the Bible. It just means that we have everything that God requires us to know on any particular topic, okay? There's a lot probably about angels we don't know. God has not told us. All that he requires us to know, though, about angels are what's in his word. In fact, when you're reading about angels, you find out a bunch of weird things. So, like, you'll be reading the book of Revelation, and it says things like, the angel, the one that has authority over fire, and you're like, what? what you just pass on by that? What do you mean that has authority over fire? I don't know what these angels do or their jobs or their powers or anything. What's going on? Because God has decided not that he would tell us everything about every particular topic in the Bible, but he's told us everything that he requires us to know. There's a lot more about God's Trinitarian nature we don't know, but everything he requires us to know is in the scriptures. 
There's a lot more about how God created the world, right? We get two chapters on one of the biggest events ever, and most of them aren't even talking about how he did it. It's mainly pointing to the fact that he was the one that did it, and everything's job. We don't know uh, how he did it on certain things, but everything he requires us to know, we do have. Does that make sense? So it's not that God has told us everything on every topic. It's he's told us everything he requires us to know. This phrase, requires us to know, is essential when we talk about sufficiency. That's what we're talking about, what God has required of us, okay? Number two, it means that we don't have any books on equal grounds with Scripture. It means we don't have any books on equal grounds with Scripture. When this passage is written, the one we just read, saying that uh, God's word makes you complete for every good work, that's written in the first century. When does the Quran come around? Who knows? Around 600s, all right, around 600s, all right, some of the ideas a little before that, but around the 600s is about the time of Muhammad and these kind of things. So if that was God's word, the Quran, it would mean that you had 600 years where this passage was not true, and to simply follow the Bible did not make you complete and did not make you one who is equipped for every good work. This means the Book of Mormon, who who knows when the Book of Mormon was written? Yeah, mid-1800s by a guy from New York who was illiterate. Not God's word, all right? This is not something to where God had just let his church go astray despite the fact that Jesus says the gates of Hades won't overcome his church for 1,800 years, and then a guy in America figured it out, okay? We have no other books on equal grounds with Scripture. Number three, it means, and this is super encouraging, it means we don't have to study everything ever written about God to know who he is. Think about the comfort that brings, Think about if the way that we had to know God was to take everybody's thought, everybody's experience, all the different philosophies and theologies and things that have been written about God, and we had to then read all of them and then compare them and try to come up with what we best thought of who God was. This brings tremendous comfort because it means to follow the scriptures is to obey God rightly, is to worship him rightly, is to know him rightly. Okay? It is to know him rightly. I was talking, <clears throat> I did some of my theological training at a Catholic institution. I'm not Catholic. I don't know if you knew that. Let me just put my cards on the table. I'm not Catholic. <clears throat> but as I'd be talking to these different Catholics, one of them was saying one day, man, I just, I wish we had some sort of better summary. We've got the Bible. We've got the teachings from the church. We've got doctrines handed down from the Pope. This theologian thinks this. This theologian thinks this. Man, I just don't know where to land. And I'm like, you know where you should land? On becoming a Protestant and believing in scripture alone. That's where you should land. Because there's all this stress and this anxiety. What happens when you have major leaders of the church, if they're speaking on the same level as scripture in a Roman Catholic thinking, what happens when a pope contradicts a pope? What happens when a church father contradicts a church father? What happens when a theologian contradicts a theologian? Now you're stressed out. Whereas with us, when we know that the sufficiency of scripture is true, it allows us to rest. It allows us to rest. God is not gonna judge us for all these hidden things he didn't tell us. He's not going to require us to believe all these things that he didn't put in his word. Number four. Number four. (laughs) Sufficiency. It means that God does not require us to believe anything not written in Scripture or covered under a general rule of Scripture. Let me say that again. It means that God does not require us to believe anything not written in Scripture or covered under a general rule of Scripture. Can I tell you a place where... uh, not knowing about sufficiency earlier on in my Christian walk really hurt me. I'm someone who's pretty, pretty, I'm kind of an anxious person. I struggle with doubts. I struggle with anxieties. Struggled for a long time, still do to some extent, struggle with assurance of my own salvation. And a pastor would get up or some evangelist in church and they would say this, 
that if you don't know that you know that you know that you know that you know that you're saved, then you're not. And I'm like, I don't know that I know that I know that I'm not in a dream right now. What do you mean? How certain do I have to be? I mean, you have a level of certainty that's like beyond math. And because of that was a false doctrine, that was not something the Bible says. The Bible says you can have faith the size of a mustard seed. You can cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. But that's not what that evangelist was saying. And because of that evangelist saying, you must believe this, and then he mentioned something that's not in Scripture, it hurt my faith. You ever heard somebody say, if you don't know the exact minute, hour, and second you were saved, that you're not saved? Those kind of things. That's not a biblical idea. That's not a biblical idea. So God does not require you to believe something that is not written in his word or covered under uh, something else that his word says, okay? So sometimes God's word won't just say everything individually. It will give you a general rule, kind of like an umbrella, and things will fit underneath that umbrella. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example. If God's word was to say something like, don't murder someone with a sword, that doesn't mean I can go murder them with a knife, because the whole point there is I shouldn't murder them. Does that make sense? So sometimes it's not going to say, don't murder people with a club, sword, knife, gun, scalpel, and just name all these things. It's going to say, don't murder and then we know that everything that falls under that umbrella is what we're to keep, all right? It's the same kind of thing there. <clears throat> Number five, and this is a big one. This is where I really want to challenge us today. <clears throat> it means that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture explicitly or by the broader implication of another rule. It means that nothing is sin that is not forbidden by Scripture explicitly or, like I was just saying about the umbrella thing, or by another rule, or by another rule of Scripture, Okay? Let me give you some quotes here. The first is from just one of my favorite theologians, Jeff Ashley. <clears throat> and he says this. He said, as we were, we were talking about this a few weeks ago, he said, sufficiency exposes hypocrisy. Sufficiency exposes hypocrisy. You start to see in your life when you believe that the Bible and the Bible is sufficient for what we need to know God and obey him, you start seeing these little legalisms and other areas in your life where you've added to scripture and it exposes hypocrisy, all right? John Calvin, a theologian less renowned than Jeff Ashley, says, <clears throat> let us use great caution that neither our thoughts nor our speech go beyond the limits to which the word of God itself extends without inquiring about him elsewhere than from his word. And let us not take it into our heads either to seek out God anywhere else than his sacred word or to think anything about him that is not prompted by his word or to speak anything that is not taken from that word. Sufficiency. Number six. Is everybody, everybody good, by the way? I know I'm going over a bunch of facts. We'll do what I always do in one of these. Everybody take a big breath. Ah, Jesus loves you. Everything's going to be okay. We're learning about sufficiency. It's great. Okay. <clears throat> Number six. Sufficiency means that no modern revelations or modern prophecy are on an equal level with Scripture. No modern revelations or modern prophecy is in an equal level with Scripture. Regardless of your views on spiritual gifts. So there's probably some people in here that think the gifts maybe have ceased. There are other people in here that think gifts maybe are still going on today. Things like prophecy and tongues and these kind of things. Regardless of where you land, here's a place we should all be able to agree. No modern word from God is on the same level as Scripture. It is not binding. It is not authoritative for the whole church. It is not something like that. Okay? I'm not saying that God doesn't prompt your heart. I think he does. I'm not saying that God doesn't give you insight into certain situations. I think he does. One of the ways the Spirit has most worked in my heart is he will bring Scripture or something that God has said to memory why I'm talking to somebody or counseling somebody. But what I'm saying is, if all of a sudden I came in to work and I said, Jeff, God gave me a dream, and he told us that everyone in our church should always wear pink pants and only pink pants. Jeff would say, you're fired, right? Because you don't believe in sufficiency. You think God's modern revelation to you in your dream is on the same level as Scripture. 
is on the same level of scripture. So we're not saying God doesn't prompt us. We're not saying God doesn't, in a sense, speak to us today. I think that he does. What we're saying is that if he does, it's not on the same level of scripture, all right? Scripture is our final standard. Scripture is that every few months, you can turn on the news and there will be somebody who killed a member of their family because, quote unquote, God told them to. And what I do is I open the scriptures and say, God told us not to do that. Because what they were doing is they were assuming that whatever they were thinking was really God and didn't check it against God's word. Okay? So sufficiency means that no modern revelations or modern prophecy are on an equal level with scripture. Okay? Number seven. It means that we have everything that God requires us to know on every area of life. It's not just sufficient for theology, but for plumbing, building a house, or doing heart surgery. What do I mean for that? Okay. When we say that, so it's not just that scripture is sufficient when it comes to theological things, but then we got to go elsewhere for other things. It's sufficient for everything. Now, what do I mean by that? Because that sounds crazy. When I say that God's word is sufficient for you to know how to do plumbing, does that mean you'll actually be able to make your sink work? No. Does it mean that whatever you do, you'll do all to the glory of God? Yeah. Does it mean that as you repair this sink, you do it for God's glory and you don't get mad and you don't not pay your repairman? Yeah. Uh, does God's word tell us everything God requires us to know about heart surgery? Yes. And guess what? He doesn't require us to know very much about it. We could not successfully operate on a heart. But he tells us what to do when we're dealing with anxiety going through the heart surgery. He tells us what to do as we do it for God's glory. He tells us how to be in community and confess our anxieties and these kind of things. So when I say that scripture is sufficient for every area of life, that doesn't mean you'll be able to actually accomplish your purpose of trying to fix things in every area of life. What it means is that everything, again, here's the phrase, God requires you to know about every area of life is in scripture. Everything God requires you to know about plumbing is there. Now, if you want to be a plumber, you better go get some other education. Everything God requires you to know about heart surgery is there. If you actually want to operate on someone's heart and become a cardiologist, you better go to school. Because God doesn't require you to fix everything. He just requires you to know what his word says. The reason I mentioned that, I'll give you an example later of that. If that one's confusing, we'll come back to that. All I'm trying to do is this. There are people that would say, yes, the Bible's, there are people that treat the Bible as though it's just a super helpful resource. Yes, the Bible's good. Yes, it tells us about God and salvation. But, you know, because this couple is struggling with their marriage, they really need something else more than the Bible to really help them get through that. And I'm trying to fight that kind of idea. I'm trying to fight that kind of idea. Number eight. Number eight. It means that creeds and statements of faith can be helpful, but they are not necessary to know and obey God's word. It means that creeds and statements of faith can be helpful, but they are not necessary to know and obey God's word. A creed is helpful to the degree that it rightly summarizes scripture. Okay, let's talk real quick about creeds and statements of faith. <clears throat> we have creeds that we believe in. We have statements of faith and creeds that we believe in here at Parkway, okay? What there are some people that will do, especially in Protestant circles, is they'll say, we have no creed but the Bible, which is a creed, right? It's saying, I believe this, and the thing I believe that is my creed is that there's no creed but the Bible, everyone actually has a creed. A creed is simply what you believe about things. The reason you can't just say, I believe the Bible, is because a Mormon will say that, and a Jehovah's Witness will say that, and a Catholic will say that, and everyone will just say they believe the Bible. That's not good enough. The question is, what do you believe the Bible actually says? And so creeds and statements of faith are, one, necessary. You already have a creed. The question is whether or not it's written or unwritten. You have things you believe about God. But that creed is helpful to the degree that it rightly interprets Scripture, but it doesn't stand over Scripture. 
Scripture always stands over creeds. Scripture always stands over statements of faith. Scripture cannot err. Creeds and statements of faith can err. But that doesn't mean we throw them out, the baby with the bathwater. Creeds are good. Statements of faith are good. They summarize what we believe the Bible actually says. All right? But ultimately, Scripture is the thing that stands above all those things. A creed or a statement of faith is as helpful and as right as it correctly interprets the Scriptures. Does that make sense? So what I'm trying to fight against is this idea that we just naively come to the Bible without presuppositions and beliefs. We all come to the Bible with presuppositions and beliefs. The question is, are those beliefs orthodox, and are they things every Christian has always believed, or are they some new thing that's just individualistic to us, all right? But it does mean that Scripture is the only standard that has no other standards above it, that has no other standards above it, okay? Number nine, sufficiency means that Listen to this one. This is very countercultural. Sufficiency means that though experience and practical wisdom can be helpful, they are not needed or required to minister to others or to yourself. Sufficiency means that though experience and practical wisdom can be helpful, they are not needed or required to minister to others and to yourself. We live in a society where people appeal to their experience to not have to sit under the truths of Scripture. I know the Bible says that, but that's not talking about people that are born gay. I know the Bible says that, but that's written by a man, and I'm a woman, and I'm kind of feministic, and so they can't tell me what to do. They don't know what it's like to walk in my shoes. And what people will do is they will use their experience, whether it's race, religion, upbringing, uh, what issues they're going through, what sins they struggle with, and they will use that as an example of why other people can't give them truth from the Scriptures. We have to avoid that. The The Bible's an equal opportunity hater. The Bible stands above all of us and critiques all of us for our sin, all right? Now, so we're not saying practical wisdom is not helpful. We're not saying experience isn't helpful. There are certain experiences that different people have that help them minister to others. What we're saying, though, is if somebody has not had that experience, they are still equipped to minister to that person with the truth of God's word. Amen? Okay. Two more, and then we'll have some test cases, and we'll argue, and it'll be a lot of fun. Righteous arguing, all right? Righteous. Iron sharpening iron. That's a better way to say it. Okay. Number 10. It means that the authority of churches... Preachers, church leaders, denominations, and elders only extend insofar as they are correctly interpreting and applying the scriptures. Let me say that again. It means that the authority of churches, preachers, church leaders, denominations, and elders only extend insofar as they are correctly interpreting and applying the scriptures, okay? Uh, we are commanded in scripture to submit to the elders. And I can, I can say I'm not an elder, right? I submit to the elders. We're commanded in scripture to submit to the elders. As we do that, though, the Bible is always our supreme authority, all right? If the elders were ever to drift, we would have to bring that to their attention and say, hey, I think we're off scripturally here because the Bible is the main source of authority and elders, churches, church leaders, staff members, denominations, they derive their authority only insofar as they correctly interpret the scriptures. We're not Roman Catholic. It's not that you've got the Bible and then whatever else the church wants to teach or declare to be doctrine. So it's not just submit to them in everything no matter what. It's insofar as they're correctly applying and interpreting the Bible, okay? Applying and interpreting the Bible. And then lastly, number 11, sufficiency does not mean that other sources such as philosophy, reason, history, and church tradition are useless, okay? What it means is that everything God requires us to know is in his word, but all these other things can be tremendously helpful. You're always doing philosophy. You're always trying to be consistent with your other beliefs. You're using reason and stuff all the time. We stand within a stream of church history. We look to church tradition to see what other Christians have believed. So we're not saying by believing the sufficiency of scripture that all these other sources are not helpful. What we're saying is that those other sources are not required to obey, submit to, love, and trust Jesus, okay? 
or for any area of life, for any area of life. Okay, everybody with me so far? More than one person with me so far? Okay, all right. Now, let's have the fun test cases. So what I'm going to do is I've got, how many here? 13 test cases that I'm going to give you and see how you would respond in light of this teaching of sufficiency. My hope in asking these questions is I want you to see that sometimes the place your heart goes first where you have to stop and say, what does the Bible say about that? Okay? Just erring on the side of what seems nice or Christianly or conservative is not always the right position. Okay? Conversely, erring on the side of what's liberal and unchristian or whatever is also not the right position. We always have to stop and question our presuppositions when it comes to the Bible. So let me give you some of these. Some of these are easier than other ones, uh, but they should be a lot of fun. Let me take a swig of water because of my cough as everyone collects their thoughts and we'll get started. You ready? Number one. A single person tries to give a married couple some advice on their struggling marriage by using the New Testament. How do you think it will be received? Biblically, how should it be received? Somebody give me your thoughts. If, a, if you're married and you're struggling with your you've been married 50 years, and a single person, some 18-year-old, hot shot, comes up and tries to give you advice biblically, how would you receive that? And then, biblically, how should you receive it if they're right? Somebody give me your thoughts. Joe. You're right. Now, typically, if a single person goes to a married person and try to give them advice on Scripture uh, when they're on their marriage, they will typically dismiss them. Why? Because of experience. They'll say, you're not married, you don't know this, despite the fact that our commands about marriage come from people like Jesus and Paul, who are single, right? The, the, the authority when we give people advice is based upon the Scriptures, not whether or not our experience matches theirs. Keep in mind those other things. Keep in mind that if that marriage is struggling and you're the single person, maybe you're not the best person to bring it to them, but if you were to bring it to them, and what you were saying was biblical, they should listen to it. You see how easy it is to just say, that's ridiculous. That's not practical. That won't work. We're not about practical and what works. We're about faithfulness. We're about Bible. Everybody with me? Okay, let's do another one. Do you like these? Okay, all right. Number two, let's say that someone who believes they have the gift of prophecy comes up to you and says that God told them that you should take a job at Amazon. So they come up to you and they say, God came to me in a dream. I asked him if it was really Jesus, and he believes Jesus came in the flesh. I tested the spirits, and uh, God told me that you should take a job at Amazon. You decide not to take the job. Have you sinned? No, why not? Uh, Yes, or I would say that, so what we would say is, no, you would not have to, because God has given us everything he requires us to do in his word. So God is not going to come to that person in a dream and give you a new command that you must follow that's not in his word like you have to go work at Amazon. Make sense? Okay, number three. This one sounds a little weird because, again, I want you to see where your heart goes as I read this one. This one's a little bit tricky. This is going to make us feel kind of gross, all right? Here it is. A 60-year-old Christian man who has never been married wants to marry an 18-year-old Christian woman who has never been married. The elders of a local church tell him that they should not get married because there is such a large age difference, and therefore they assume he must have ulterior motives. After considering their advice, is the man free to marry her, or is he bound to obey the elders on this issue? (laughs) Isn't that a good one? These are real issues, by the way. The kind of issues that I've dealt with in ministry are things like somebody's spouse passes away, They want to get married two months later, and then people start condemning them because that's not enough time. 
you have to start saying, what do you mean by not enough time? Biblically not enough time? Or you're just concerned that there might be something else going on? Or what, what's going on? So, let's go over it. Six-year-old men, neither of these have been married, so we don't have to get into the whole divorce question. Neither of them have been married. And let's say there's no ulterior motives. She's not a gold digger. He's not just some sort of lecherous man or something. And they want to get married. And uh, the elders advise against it. And the man considers it. We should always consider that advice. Because if that advice is based on Scripture, then you have to obey it. But if it's just general advice, then you have to wrestle on what the Bible says. Is the man free to marry that woman or not? Yes, yes. I don't like saying that. I want to say no. There's something wrong here. But if we believe in sufficiency, we have to say, yeah. Now, we might counsel them, hey, that might be unwise. The age gap might cause a lot of problems. You guys might fight a lot. One of you will pass away before the other one, which would be really difficult. We might give them wise advice. But if they marry, they have not sinned in and of themselves. Okay? You can do things that are unwise that are not sinful. I can go eat a cardboard box right now if I want to, and I have not sinned. <laughs> it's not wise, but it's not sinful. Okay? <clears throat> Number four, a woman wants to get plastic surgery on her nose so that she looks more attractive for her husband. Is that okay, or is it sin uh, for her or not to get plastic surgery? So she says, you know what, I've always hated my nose. I want to go get a, uh, you know, some sort of plastic surgery on my nose so it looks better for my husband. Is that sin in and of itself? Where does your heart go? We say, oh, well, are you doing it to be vain? Are you doing it to attract other men? So let's say it's not one of those other issues. Because we agree that if the reason she's doing it is to attract other men, that's a problem. And if the reason she's doing it is because she doesn't find her identity in Christ, but how she looks, that's a problem. But let's say those aren't the issue is it wrong for her to go get plastic surgery or something on her nose if she wants to? No. Not according to sufficiency. You see, in all these examples, we have to end up saying yes when we don't really want to. That's what sufficiency does. That's what Jeff means when he says sufficiency exposes hypocrisy. Is that in all these, I want to say, no, you can't marry her. You're, she's 18. Get, get away from us. And I want to say, no, you can't do this. Yes, sir. For sure. Great question. So I'll repeat the question just for the recording. His question is, if, if we're saying that someone can do plastic surgery like that, what do we do about passages that say things like, you're fearfully and wonderfully made, or even that your body's a temple? Uh, conversely, what do we do with passages where people say that I don't like the gender that I am? Those are two very different examples. On the first one, you get a haircut. Do you not? Do you get a haircut? Do you work out if you want to lose weight? If your child is born with a cleft lip, do you have surgery to say, though they're fearfully and wonderfully made, meaning they're made in the image of God, it is still better to reverse and fix that cleft lip because of their appearance? Yes, you do. So you see that even in this, the passage of being fearfully and wonderfully made does not mean you cannot improve upon your body or something like that, but it becomes a heart issue. And I think the point you're pointing out there is really good. We have to wrestle with our hearts a lot on something like that. A lot of people do that because they find their identity in how they look instead of in Christ. And so they think, if I could just do this this way, then I would find joy and I would find acceptance. So we have to be careful of that. The second one, though, is very different. The second one is not, I guess to say it this way, on the first example, they're improving something that they already are. In the second one, they're mutilating something they already are. They're not improving it. They're not a man who's looking more like a man or a woman that's looking more like a woman. They're ones who are trying to, you can't change your gender. You can only mutilate the body. Okay? Uh, in the Bible, even, if a man is castrated to become a eunuch, he is still a man. Right? He is still a man. God has made you body and soul, whatever gender you are. And so those two examples are different, but I'm glad you point that out because people will use that kind of argumentation. Well, if you can get plastic surgery, then I can change my gender. And we're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Those aren't the same thing. Those aren't the same thing. That's great. That's a great point. Let me give you another one, number five here. <clears throat> 
As you are talking to a Catholic, they insist that you cannot interpret the Bible on your own because there was also oral tradition that was passed down in the church before the Bible was written down. You have to look at official Catholic doctrines to find this oral tradition. How would you respond? How would you respond? I have had to deal with this a lot where I say something like, I believe in sola scriptura. I'm a pro. I think all we need is the Bible. And they'll say, well, Zach, who do you think put together the, who do you think put together the Bible? The Catholic Church. Come on home, brother. Come home to Mother Church. And I say, away from me, sola scriptura. On this I will stand. I can do no other, so help me, God. That's what they're saying, is that they're saying that in addition to the Bible, you need this other oral tradition. You need this church history. You need these decrees from popes to correctly interpret it. What would we say to that? We would say no. All right, we would say no, especially where those traditions contradict Scripture. That's typically where I take them in that argument. I'm not saying there aren't other helpful things Christians have believed. That's not our doctrine of sufficiency. We're saying that all that God requires us to believe is what's in his word. Number six. Everybody okay, by the way? This is the, this is the most nervous for these theological classes I've been because these examples kind of make me a bad guy. So do with, that, do with my insecurities what you will. Okay, <clears throat> number six. Someone says to you that you cannot claim that the Bible teaches homosexuality is wrong because you don't struggle with same-sex attraction. How would you respond? Let's ask this question. How would you respond even pastorally as well, kindly? What would be the answer, but how would you approach it with them? Somebody be bold. I come up to you and I say, hey, you can't tell me homosexuality is wrong. I was born gay. You weren't. Uh, I struggle with same-sex attraction. You don't. And so you can't minister to me on this issue. How would you respond to that? Go for it. Melissa, what would you say? That's a, great, that's a great way to approach it, to let them know, hey, hey, listen. One, the truth of God's word is what makes things sin or not sin, not our experience. I don't have to struggle with If that were the case, Jesus couldn't minister and give us commands because he never sinned, right? Uh, so one, yes, the tr- the, our authority to rebuke or to correct or to train in righteousness comes from the scriptures, not our experience. But I think the point that you mentioned pastorally would be great to say, listen, I'm not here throwing stones. You struggle with a particular sin. I struggle with other sins. It's not Jesus versus gay people or something. It's Jesus versus everybody. Or as one pastor said, there's not good people and bad people. There's bad people in Jesus. Those are the two categories that everybody can be in. And so letting them know, listen, it's not I'm up here high and lofty. It's you struggle this way. I struggle this way. The Bible would say we're both to repent. Christ offers forgiveness no matter what our sins is if we'll repent and lay down and submit to him. Jesus actually asked everybody to not, come, to not stay as they were born, which is broken in sin and depraved and belonging to the devil, but rather to put their hope in him. That's good. That's good. Okay, here's another one. Here's another one. Number seven. Someone claims that to really be, oh man, this is, this is, this is going to, okay, I don't want to step on toes, but I'm going to do it anyway. Someone claims that to really be a faithful parent, you have to do your kids' schooling a certain way, to feed them certain kinds of food or milk or whatever, to treat them a certain way that the Bible doesn't address, do you have to agree with them? You don't. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some positions that are better than others. I have my own opinions on schooling. I have my own opinions on food and these kind of things. I have my own opinions on medicine and these kind of things. So we're not saying that some are not, might not be practically better than others. What we're saying, though, is that let's make sure our wise opinions and what Scripture actually says, that we don't hold those the same. We should hold what Scripture says Absolutely. And with our own opinions, we can have strong opinions, but let's not condemn other people that simply don't hold our opinions. Is that fair? Watch, I've seen a lot. Now, now that I've become a parent, I didn't even know this existed, but now that I became a parent with Judah, uh, there's a lot of online, what I call mean moms, right? 
They're mean. They, they boast about how great a moms they are and they condemn everyone else because they don't do this or they do do this or they, you know, have this view or whatever. And I just think to myself, man, you can have opinions. And I'm not saying that there aren't positions that are better than other positions. We're free as Christians to debate about those. But if the Bible has not said it explicitly or it's been covered by a general implication of Scripture, you need to hold those things with an open hand. You need to hold those things with an open hand. Okay? Number eight. <coughs> This is not something typically someone will say, but it's something a lot of people think. Number eight, a woman claims that a pastor cannot teach about male leadership to women because the pastor is male and he doesn't know what it's like to be a woman. Is that true? No, it's not. That typically happens if you're teaching on biblical roles of manhood and womanhood, the role of a husband and wife, these kind of things. People won't say that, but they'll think that you don't know what it's like. You don't have the husband I have. And listen, I want to sympathize with that. There are places I don't know what that's like. I certainly don't have the husband you have. But... God's word equally stands over all of us. God's word equally stands over all of us, okay? Number nine, a fellow Christian tells you to abstain from all forms of consuming alcohol because their dad was an alcoholic and because it is the wisest way to live. Do you have to follow their advice? (laughs) A hearty amen in the back. Uh, Yeah, so, so here's now, let me just be really clear. Some of you should abstain from that. If you know you have tendencies toward alcoholism, you should stay away from that. Uh, if, uh, if you can't do it in faith, you should stay away from that. All right, anything not done in faith is sin. If you're underage, where's the youth? Was that a youth that said no real loud? I'm kidding. Uh, if you're underage, you're disobeying your parents and breaking the law, you should stay away. But you have to be careful. Again, this is kind of one of those issues that we've built fences around to where we say any of this must be sin, and that's not what the Bible says, okay? Drunkenness, that is, these other things. <clears throat> but just on this advice, it is not. Number 10, A man who is struggling in his marriage says that you cannot offer him advice because you are not a licensed counselor and he will only listen to a licensed counselor. Is he right? Is he right? No. Now, (laughs) from a counselor in the back. Yeah, so are counselors helpful? Absolutely. Some of the most, some of the biggest spiritual breakthrough I've had has been meeting with a guy whose name was Dr. Henderson, who was a biblical counselor, well-trained, thoroughly biblical, and man, he wrecked my world. I would say things like, you know what? I think I struggle with self-hate. And he'd say, the Bible says no man ever hated his own flesh. The problem is not that you struggle with self-hate. It's that you love yourself too much. You love yourself more than God. That's why you think about yourself all day. And I was like, (laughs) I'm not paying you anything for that to abuse me. So they're great. We're pro and big on biblical counseling and these kind of things for sure. But what the person there again is doing is they're trying to escape biblical advice based on expertise. What were counselors called before the invention of psychology as a soft science? Pastors. That's what you had before psychology became its own field, beginning with guys like Freud and these kind of things. Number 11. We're almost done. A man is applying to be a leader in the church, and though they meet the biblical requirements, they don't meet additional requirements that the church adds, such as being married, being a leader in the business world, having a college or seminary degree, or being a good administrator. Should these things necessarily exclude the man from that position? No, they should. Now, there might be wisdom, though. We we probably would not hire a staff member to teach that didn't have a degree or something like this. But it's not a requirement. You don't have to do that. Okay, so again, there's the wisdom stuff. And then there's what the Bible would actually require. So if a church wants to say, in our context, where so many people are married, it would be better to have a pastor here that's married, that's fine. But it's, it can't become a biblical requirement that you think it's wrong or sinful or something to not have that, or else you've added to the scriptures. Number 12. Now, this one, this one will hit home for a lot of us. Okay, This will hit home for a lot of us. A family, a family member who has cancer is really struggling with their faith. 
does the Bible contain all that God requires their family to know to best minister to the person with cancer? It does. Now, could there be other things that are helpful for that person with cancer? Yeah, maybe talking to other cancer patients, certain books and research are helpful, these kind of things. But as far as what God requires you to know to minister to them, or requires the family to know to minister to them, the one thing that they need are the scriptures. If you have the scriptures, you are, again, on the basis of God's word, complete and equipped for every good work. If this is a good work, and it is, ministering to someone with cancer, you're equipped for that with God's word. And then lastly, this is a fun one. This is a personal heart check one. <clears throat> is there any area of your life where you struggle to truly believe in the sufficiency of Scripture? What are those little legalisms for you and I? As I was getting ready for this lesson, Jeff and I sat down in his office and he said, what are your legalisms? If we're doing sufficiency, we've got to be under this as well. This isn't just something for our people. What are the things that you think, though the Bible doesn't say it, you really hold to it tightly? So think about what those are. I remember having a professor come in one time and somebody asked the professor, I won't say his name in case anybody knows who it is, Dr. So-and-so, do you think it's okay for men to play cards? And he said, yeah, I think it's okay for men to play cards. And I also recently just became comfortable with men having long hair. I'm just conquering one legalism at a time. That's what he said. (laughs) All right? One legalism at a time. Let me end with this and then I'll have Jeff come up. This will be really important. Let me give you a practical implication of believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. The Spirit will not help you overcome things that are not really sin. So what happens is where you're believing in certain little legalisms or you're adding to God's word, you'll start beating yourself up because you add a rule that the scriptures don't add and then you try to keep it and you fail and you try to keep it and you fail and you try to keep it and you fail and you get discouraged because the Holy Spirit's not gonna equip you to overcome something that is not actually sin. And so what happens is if you do that, you will actually see your spiritual life stunted It will not grow like it should, and you'll never see victory in that area, all right? It's like if you really loved to wear hats, and you thought it was sinful to wear hats, you're like, God, I'm sorry, I keep wearing this hat, and he's like, it's okay, you can wear the hat, all right? The Spirit will not equip you to overcome things that aren't really sin that you just think are sin. Now, this is not what I'm giving in here. Let me be clear. When I talk about legalisms, what I mean is places where we've added to Scripture, I don't mean places where we actually try to obey on the things Scripture said. That's not legalism. To keep God's word and to obey God's word is not legalism. That is good and righteous. If it's done from a heart of faith and not to merit his salvation or something like this, like the Pharisees are doing. What I'm pushing against is not, I'm not just saying, well, we've all got our sins. Who really cares? There's grace. That's not what I'm saying. Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? May Godoyta, may it never be. Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is on things that are not sin where we've added to the scriptures, those are things we have to let go. And that's tough because it, legalism always feels righteous. Here's what's so tricky about struggling with legalism, and I know this because I struggle with it, is I always feel like that's what God's asking me to do because it feels more holy. And I have to stop in that moment and say, well, God, in your word, have you actually asked me to do this? Have you actually asked me to do this? Okay, Jeffrey. Jeff will come up. We've got a, another mic here. I'm gonna grab it. And we will have time for Q&A. Okay. Question. Yes, Julian. Yeah, Yeah. let me rephrase the question, and then I'm going to kick it to Jeff. Uh, to so here's the thing. The question is basically, what about these issues that are not sin in and of themselves, but my conscience won't let me do them? One, is that sin? And two, how do I overcome that? How do I reshape my conscience, maybe, or something like that? Let me be really clear. Let me, everybody look at me. This is important. 
everything that I've just mentioned in these examples, that doesn't mean I am for or against them. What I am for is sufficiency. So I'm not here to push any one issue. I'm here to push the doctrine of sufficiency. That makes sense. Okay, Jeff, we had actually talked about this some this week. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Sorry. Way to start with a cough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I think it's a great question. I think it's a question probably every one of us in this room has to wrestle with at some point because we all have uh, those the legalisms. We all have these little things that we have, whether it's uh, our upbringing or... Uh, the church that we were raised in, whatever it might be, we have these things that have been added to uh, God's word. And, uh, and so uh, I think the first thing that we can do is just get to know the scripture. And so the more that you're in the scripture, uh, the more that you're familiar with not only the explicit things, but the implications as well. And, uh, and so is it, is it sinful in and of itself uh, to speed? No. But is it sinful because of Romans 13 and the command to submit to authority? Yes. And, uh, and so you not only get to know the explicit areas of sin, but the implications as well. That'll only come as you're in the scripture more and more and more and more and more. Not only do you get to know the explicit, implicit sort of arguments of scripture, but you get to just hear what the Lord's uh, voice is like. Um, and, uh, and then the second thing is uh, just to recognize that if you can't do something with a good conscience, if you can't do something in faith, then you should refrain and, uh, and, and begin to then press into that discomfort and see, is that really discomfort that comes from the Lord? Or is that a discomfort that comes from my parents? Is that a discomfort that comes from uh, my church leaders? Is that a discomfort that just comes uh, from uh, the flesh? And, uh, but the important thing to recognize is, is the Bible does treat it in such a way as to say, if you can't do this in faith, if you can't do this from a clear conscience, then, then your opportunity in that moment is to abstain. But the goal is not just to simply abstain perpetually, but to press into that, to wrestle with that, to struggle with that, to pray through that, to talk to others about that, to study the scripture in that, and then hopefully to begin to come to, I mean, the Bible would call that an area of weakness. And, uh, and so should we, uh, should we be ashamed or to avoid weakness? No, but we should seek when we can uh, for our weaknesses to grow into and mature into strength. So those would be some things. Yeah, let me mention one thing, and then I'll, then I'll have Dr. Steve uh, ask his question. So <clears throat> when you're wrestling with whether or not, so it's a conscience issue. The first thing you have to ask is, has the Bible spoken to it clearly? Because if God has commanded you to do something, I don't care how your conscience feels. Like there are people that won't do righteous things because they don't feel into it or they don't feel like they're being true to themselves or something like that. If God's commanded you to do it, you do the right action and you wait for your heart to catch up. If your options are do the wrong action with the wrong heart or do the right action with the wrong heart, do that second one. <laughs> the goal is right action with the right heart. But when it comes to issues that God has not commanded, when it's things like you've mentioned, things that are not sinful, but for certain people could be sinful based on their convictions, then you do not do it until you can, all things not done in faith is sin. So, yeah, Dr. Steve. So the question is, am I sinning when I don't follow a conviction that I have followed? Because here's the thing, you'll hold certain convictions for a season and then not hold them anymore. So why Judah's little, we're not just going to leave him at the house and throw some Skittles in there and hope for the best. We're going to have a babysitter. But when he gets older, we don't have a babysitter, right? So your convictions will change over time. And so the question is, what do you do when those convictions change? How do you not sin? How do you do it in faith? So a few things. I think the main point we're trying to make is this. Reshape your convictions in light of the Scripture. Don't reshape the Scripture in light of your convictions. 
We, we t- have a tendency to do the second one. <clears throat> I think what you have to do in that circumstance is you have to, the first question you have to ask is, what would God have me do? What is the best way to lead my family? Because he's commanded you to lead your family. Uh, and then I think you start walking down that process and you try to reshape your heart and bring your heart there as you move along. Because if it's something that God has given you to protect your family or whatever, here's my fear in teaching this lesson. My fear is that people do one of two things. They will either say, we shouldn't think about any other things as far as wisdom or how our society works and whether this is wise. The Bible doesn't say, don't let your kid live on their own in Las Vegas, so I'm going to let my kid live on their own in Las Vegas or whatever. And so that's part of my fear is that we go so far that we don't think any wisdom is helpful. On the other side, though, my fear is that we so have experiences and wisdom is that we start to read our convictions back onto the Scripture. And I want us to be somewhere in the middle. But what I think you do in that circumstance is you stop and you say, what is best for my family? I think you talk to other godly men to see what they would do. And then I think you start taking those steps as you're studying the scripture, as you're asking God to reshape your heart. So I think you'd start doing the right action if it's something God has commanded you to do. If it's something that he hasn't commanded you to do and you're not comfortable with it yet, you, I think you try to reshape that, your comfortability until you can do it. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think uh, <laughs> your example is hard because it's not dealing with a... a a matter where there is a command either way. There's not a command that says you must let your daughters participate in a sleepover uh, or that you can't. And uh, and so in, in those particular cases, I think it comes down to a matter of a lot of communication between husband and wife uh, to know to what degree are we going to be uh, bound by these convictions that we've made and, uh, and then uh, to wrestle through in what seasons are we willing to uh, kind of expand the boundaries of those convictions and so forth? It, the harder issues are uh, where uh, you might have a conviction that by implication would then uh, disallow. So for, for instance, if you were to say, uh, we have five daughters and because of the prevalent abuse, because of those kinds of things, we're not going to allow them to have any friends outside the, okay, well then all of a sudden you've robbed them of opportunities to love others, to be involved in the church and that kind of stuff. But your particular uh, example is difficult because there, there is no explicit requirement that they have to be involved in a, I mean, sleepovers didn't even exist for the vast majority of human history. There's not, what's tough is there, there's not a, what you're going to have to wrestle, there, there's not a clear answer to your question. This is where you have to take general, this is where you have to play the role of the theologian. You got to take general principles in scripture and say, how can I best play this out? And some of those are intention. My heart's not really in this right now, but it's not sin, but I want my heart to change, but I want to study the Bible, but what's wisdom? And you wrestle through that. And this is a great chance to plug community groups. So you can ask other people in your community group. So, but, but I, I think why it's difficult is there are implications of what you're saying that are commands. So you would have a command to protect your daughters. And if you lived in a society where this thing was so prevalent that that wasn't protecting your daughter, I would think that would be a command. But it's not a direct command because it's not always the case that that's bad to do a sleepover or something like that. So you're going to have to wrestle. I I would leave that up to an issue of conscience. Uh, I would stay with what you're doing until y'all change your view together as a couple uh, as you study the scriptures. And I I think you can accelerate the change of your conscience with scriptural study, with talking to other people, and these kind of things. There, there are some positions I hold now I didn't originally hold, and all it took to get me there was one conversation. Sitting down with a pastor, sitting down with a professor and saying, I think this is sin. Would you help me? And they'll say, well, no, because this, 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 this. Now my conscience has changed. You've now opened my eyes to what the scriptures say on this. So it, don't, don't think that that change has to take six years or something. You can shape consciences quicker by looking at the scriptures. Yes, Ms. Linda and then Brian, if we've got time. For sure. Yeah, let me, let me be really clear. Just because you have a conviction... 
Paul doesn't say that that's sin. He says that you could even, so for when he's talking about eating meat sacrificed to idols, he'll even say, uh, this meat's okay to eat. It belongs to Jesus because he's talking. So in, in, first, in first Corinthians, what they would do is they would offer these sacrifices and then they'd sell the meat in the market. Okay, so if these sacrifices have been offered to pagan gods and pagan deities, Christians were like, can we eat that? Because it was used in this evil worship ceremony. And Paul's answer is, yes, because it belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to them. But he'll say, if you can't do it in faith, don't do it. So I'm not saying convictions are bad. If you hold convictions, that's fine. What you can't do is read your convictions on other people. And if it is something that God has commanded, so in the example you gave, God has commanded this to her, so she should not drink. All right, so that, that would be clear. Or if there is some like uh, who takes a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament or whatever, they're not supposed to drink. That's different than the command, because God has not bound all of us by that command not to drink. And so you're right, we would never encourage somebody to go against their convictions unless they were sinning by doing so uh, before they were ready, before the conviction changed, and especially if it's something God has not told them to do. And sometimes there's wisdom. I have a buddy who uh, is a former meth addict, and he became a Christian, got saved, he's been clean for a long time. Uh, I can't sit down and watch a movie or show with him that has drug use. I can watch it, but if he watches it, it really affects him in a negative way. So to serve my brother, I'm not going to say, get over your conviction and sit down and watch this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to capitulate to the weaker brother. That's the, the language Bible we use, and I'm not going to do that around him. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong for me to watch. It means it's wrong for me to do. Right? It's not wrong for me to watch. And so, uh, so that's how I'll serve him. But I think that's a great point. I think it's a great point you bring up. Yeah, convictions are not bad. Just to hold a conviction is not sinful. If you don't want to do something because you're uncomfortable with it, you don't have to do it unless it's a command from God. Yeah. Uh, Brian, you had last question, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. Yeah, so, uh, you know, <clears throat> the whole point of this is not, uh, the whole point of this entire exercise, this entire lesson, is not to drive one particular issue. Um, and uh, And so whether that's, Tattoos or drinking or fill in the blank, whatever whatever it is. There's not like some sort of a uh, a desire to just challenge one particular issue. The desire is to challenge an entire method of reading the scripture and interpreting the scripture. That is, just to be honest with you, ninety something percent of all the churches that you will go and visit out there don't hold to what we're talking about today. They might hold to inerrancy, authority, and, and so forth. But when it comes to sufficiency, there is a capitulation there. There is a desire to, whether it's a theologically li- uh, liberal church, to remove some things from Scripture or a theologically conservative church to add to, uh, to Scripture. And so what we want to do is to come along and to say there is a difference between a command of Scripture that is going to be universal. So every one of us, when it comes to drunkenness, should be able to say, that is sinful, and that is not appropriate. Uh, Adultery, that is sinful, that is not appropriate. Uh, Versus issues of conscience. And what's difficult for us is that there could be, in in a room of 70 people, there could be 20, 30 different positions uh, and where people are on the spectrum, and that's okay. That's part of what it means to each of us have our own convictions and consciences and so forth is that we need to be okay in those gray areas to just simply let them be gray and let each person hold to what they uh, hold. But this is an issue that I think permeates the church. So I, I, uh, I went into pastoral ministry at 27, didn't get married until 34. I can't tell you how many meetings I had with people who said, you can't tell me anything about marriage because you're not married. And I wasn't trying to tell them, you know, practical sort of things. I was trying to tell them, you can't divorce your spouse. 
Um, just because your spouse, you know, bugs you, just because you guys argue all the time, that is not grounds for you to divorce your spouse or whatever it might be. Or, um, you know, you can't uh, withhold doing good to your spouse as punishment for something. You know, these broad biblical principles that they said, you can't tell me that. And, uh, and so I think what, what trying to do is just wrestle with the idea that Scripture itself contains all that is necessary for us, uh, all that God requires of us, and then to allow us just as brothers and sisters and friends and so forth to hold our own consciences and convictions. And so we might very well have some robust dialogue so you might choose to, to raise Izzy and, uh, and so forth in a way that's a little bit different than the way that I uh, raised Larkin. And I might try to convince you that my way is a little bit better. You might try to convince me that your way is a little bit better. But at the end of the day, I can't say if you choose homeschooling versus uh, public schooling versus private schooling um, that you're sinning. Uh, in that, and uh, and so I think that's the that's the important thing to get from this. Not one particular example, whatever that might be. So if there's anything you're walking away with, and you're like, they're trying to argue for this. No, we're trying to argue for the idea that Scripture itself is uh, sufficient, and that's the thing we want to rally around. Not any particular pet issue or whatever it might be. So let me pray again, <clears throat> Father. Thank you so much for. Uh, your love for us. Thank you for uh, Scripture. Thank you for um, the reality that it is uh, inspired. It's breathed out by you. And as a consequence, uh, it is authoritative and inerrant and uh, sufficient. And as we'll see next week, it's necessary and clear uh, for us. And, uh, and so, God, I'm just grateful, grateful for an opportunity for us to examine these issues, these issues that are uh, difficult and uh, and complex, and expose uh, our hypocrisy, and expose our preferences, and uh, expose convictions and conscience, and make them uh, uh, kind of uh, make us kind of uh, submit them to Scripture and to examine them and to see what we really hold because you've commanded it versus what we hold because it feels right. And so I pray that you would help us in that and grant us the freedom and liberty as brothers and sisters to uh, disagree on great issues. And, uh, and so, Lord, we do love you. We're grateful for your word. We pray now as we go into uh, service that uh, our hearts would resonate with uh, songs of worship and that we would be led as we continue to pray and as we consider your word that uh, as it's uh, proclaimed, uh, that our hearts would be grateful, uh, especially as we consider the crucifixion of your son. And, uh, and so would you bless us today? Help us. We confess that we need you in Jesus' name. Amen.